On this episode of the Trauma-Informed Podcast with your host, Jeff Friedman, I have Victoria Burns joining me. And Victoria is a uh, social work professor at the University of Calgary. And um, here she explores her own recovery journey and uh, how she's dealt uh, navigating being out as a uh, sober person in academia. Tell me a little bit about how you, uh, your recovery journey and, and how you, uh, yeah, I mean, how, how, where that started and to where you are today. Right. So alcoholism runs deeply on both sides of my family. So what I, I like to say, I was born in an alcoholic soup and I did grow up in an alcoholic home. So I learned to cope think with using alcohol and well, actually it started with food as a child. When you grew up in an alcoholic home, there is chaos just as a side effect of that. And well, you said food, what, like uh, what type of food would you uh, indulge in? Oh, well, anything really. I think that something that I look at in my work is this idea that we focus too much on the substances when right. We're talking about addiction. I do believe addiction is addiction is addiction. It's using something, regulating your internal world or landscape with something external. So for me, I started sneaking food and using food as a source of comfort from a very early age, I think as early as five or six yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I was just asking about the specific food to like to more paint a picture about what's going on, not saying that it matters what type of food it was, but what, what were you, what were you, what was your, what do you like to binge with, with in terms of food then? Uh, well, I, I think it, it would be any, any sort of high car, carbohydrate or sugary types of food. The one that gets the biggest dopamine <laughs> hit. All right. And then uh, where did you go after from, from moving along? Where did you go from there? So I, one of the things that I think was my saving grace growing up is that I always excelled in school. And that is where I rendered a lot of my self-worth and self-esteem. And we can get into that later about how that kind of craving those gold stars can become problematic and transform into workaholism as well. But definitely, you know, through school, I always, I did excel. I always felt, I always loved school. I loved everything, you know, I, the homework, all of that kind of thing. And I continued, I, you know, really didn't start my, my drinking career. I'd say I started, I had my first drink that I can remember at 13, but I, I didn't drink problematically until I was 18. And I moved to France for a year to, it was a bursary program. And I had done one year of university already. And it's then a bursary I bursary program? Yeah, it was like a bursary program. I'm not familiar with, I mean, yeah, what, what that means. Like a scholarship kind okay. of. No, so, I think the bursar's office, they use that term, I, I guess. Is where they handle the money for the university. So I guess that makes sense. That it, but. Yeah, it was in uh, Poitiers, France, which is about three hours southwest of Paris. And there was a 
sort of an accord between my university in New Brunswick and then that university. So I had always wanted, I felt very suffocated in, in New Brunswick. I really wanted to branch out and I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. So I was 18 and left. I didn't have a place to live at the time. I figured I'll just kind of, so I did some couch surfing and finally, you know, ended up meeting some people and moving in with them. And it was really like that movie, Auberge Espagnole, where we had a, you know, my roommate was German and a French and I hung out with all the international parties. And that's really where my drinking took off because it was very normalized to be partying four or five days a week. And it wasn't a problem at that point, but I really started to romanticize the bottle in the sense that it provided me with a sense of connection, a sense of belonging. Because right. I didn't feel I belonged in my family or kind of, I was sort of like a black sheep in that way. And I felt. Well, how so? Finally, because, you, because, yeah, how, how yeah, how what was the reason you felt you were in the, the black sheep in your family? Well, people often ask me if I was adopted just because I was like, I looked different than my two sisters. I was very interested in school and coming from a working class background. Like this wasn't something that my family was interested in. They never talked about, we weren't allowed to talk about anything like politics or there weren't any, many books around, like they didn't read or anything. And I was kind of more bookish i guess so well actually going I, back to that but but uh, since you mentioned it, something i thought about is is so in your parents growing up were they uh since they were said they're working class more blue collar were they ever involved in any labor unions or anything like that or? my my dad was i think well he he worked he worked for the the town like in works department kind uh-huh. of thing but he was disabled also when I was growing up because he was flagging like a work site when I was seven and he was hit by a 17 year old who woman who was speeding. So he almost lost his life and he was kind of in and out has a complicated relationship with the union (laughs) because of, of disability claims and that kind of thing. But that's a whole other story. Right. Sure. But but I was saying that I've, I've known people that can be, you know, being that they're involved with unions, they can be they can be working class and be very political. That's why I was wondering why you said that they were. No, they were definitely not political at all. Yeah, we weren't allowed to talk about religion or politics. Okay, so going back to what you were saying, how you were <laughs> yeah, you were more uh, into school, and then there was that, that disconnect. But yeah, yeah, there was uh, definitely a disconnect, and it wasn't expected. I think to you know, even go to university. And it was quite, you know, I, I, I dealt with a lot of grief having done, you know, four degrees because my parents would always say, you know, why, like, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going to get a right. real job kind of thing? Right. <laughs> so now they're okay with it, I think. But at the time it was, it was definitely something, there was a lot of shame around that pursuit. So yeah, anyway, I left home and, and that's where, you know, I really came into my own in the sense that I felt, you know, a sense of belonging. I was being invited places and I associated that with drinking and also smoking because I was very anti-cigarette smoking and it was, I moved there in 2000 to France. So it was still very accepted to be 
smoking everywhere. So just to fit in and that kind of thing, I started smoking cigarettes and I started drinking a lot. And then when I moved back to Canada, it was supposed to just be like a thing for France, like the partying and that kind of thing. And then I was legal age and I was able to get into the bars and it continued. Were you, and, were you ever into the, the loose leaf, loose tobacco smoking? Or? No, I wasn't actually, <laughs> I, I, I was open to it, but I, it was actually that year I had, cause I did a lot of traveling as well that year abroad. And I went to Amsterdam and mm-hmm. of course tried the coffee shops and right. I tried it and got so sick that I thought this is definitely not the Zen chilled out vibe that people talked about. <laughs> So I never tried it again. And my excuse was, or my rationale was, well, alcohol, I have control over alcohol and cigarettes. And little did I know that I, you know, I had, I had control and some power over it for a while, but there was definitely some turning points where I basically never knew how the night was going to end. Well, that's the thing, right? Like I, I sm- I lived with everyone who smoked and right. I thought, well, I'm going to get secondhand smoke anyway. So <laughs> I may as well, you know, participate right. and be part of the, the crowd. Yeah. But so yeah, going from there, what, where was the, the next, the next place? When- so, so yeah, I ended up finishing my degree in psychology and then moving to Ottawa to get a quote unquote real job with the government armed with my psychology degree, which doesn't really, (laughs) I don't know if it's the same in the States. Yeah, no, it's the same. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, your undergrad degree. So I ended up working at coffee shop and the YMCA and I really had a desire to go back to Europe. So I ended up applying for a teaching assistantship in France again and, or for an English teacher, I guess. And got it. So I moved back to France for another year. And it was at that time that something shifted. I was sexually assaulted in Europe. And it was very traumatic for me. And it was in the first week, actually, when I was there, when I moved. And instead of so I just sort of numbed it down and started drinking more just to kind of numb that that experience and that pain and not think about it. And I didn't think about it. You know, I just continued with my life. I started teaching and. Um, what were you teaching them? I was teaching English. Yeah. At a French high school. And, you know, I, I didn't get any help for it or anything. And that was, I think definitely a turning point for me. I met my husband there that year actually. And we, ended up moving back to Canada together. So that was interesting, but I got accepted. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, the psych psychology thing, I I don't know. And I had found out about, I was doing some volunteer work when I worked at the Y and really liked, I've always been, I think, attracted to the underdog or, you know, wanting to help and social work really appealed to me. So I got accepted to McGill, which was like a one year post diploma program. So I thought that's great. 15 months, I can get my BSW, my bachelor of social work. And I was really interested in mental health. And I, you know, I ended up doing my practicum at the Douglas hospital, which is one of the largest psychiatric institutes in, in the country and oldest. And anyway, so 
just this, I think the things started to get more and more stressful when I got back because I was, you know, I had no money. My husband and I had no money. We were, I was working at a coffee shop. I had started my own business, walking dogs and was doing my practicum, you know, a, a degree in one year, essentially. So four days of practicum a week plus courses. And I started drinking more, you know, more just to kind of keep, um, kept me together. Well, I mean, going back, you, you know, you said that, like, you don't want to emphasize so much the, the, the substance, but did you have, what, what would you drink uh, when, when you were drinking? What was I drinking? I was, well, I was mainly, so I should mention that when I was 19, I, I had my first ultimatum to stop drinking from a boyfriend. And I was like, no way. And at that, so I had tried swearing off different types of alcohol because I thought it was the type of alcohol right. that was the problem. So I didn't, I swore off all hard stuff, for instance. And I thought, well, I'm only going to drink wine and beer because, you know, I have more control over that. Again, this, like my obsession was to one day both control and enjoy my drinking. And like, I was a blackout drinker from, you know, that beginning and did really out of character things like get into random cabs with people, take off. Like I was that kind of wanderer drunk. So, but by day I was an A plus student. So no one really saw it as a problem. And the people I hung around with were also heavy drinkers. And my husband was as well. And, you know, in France, like he grew up in the South of France and wine was a big part of his life. And, and so we drank a lot together. We drank a lot of wine. And I also hid my addiction because I became very kind of, you know, skilled. I knew about all the different wines and it was all, I thought it was this very sophisticated thing and that kind of thing. So, right. you know, that carried on, I ended up doing my master's. The blackouts got worse. The remorse, the shame got worse. The double life got worse. And it was when I started my PhD. So I started my PhD in 2011 and I was out kind of like a last, you know, bash kind of thing, like wanted to, you know, have a party kind of thing with a girlfriend before I started. And it was Labor Day weekend and we had gone out and it was just supposed to be, you know, dinner and then, but we ended up going to a club. And then anyway, I ended up being roofied and sexually assaulted wow. by someone, a stranger. And that trauma and like the week before I started school. So I just went on, but like, again, like my, I just, you know, I, I didn't want to report anything. I knew all of the, you know, how it can be more re-traumatizing reporting, especially if there's alcohol involved. So, and well, I just you say a little bit about that because I mean, but I mean, my take on that is, is that if it's, if you, you report it and then you, it often doesn't really go in your favor, then that can be, you know, re-traumatizing or make things worse. Well, what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah. But just like with the, you know, as we know, with the Kavanaugh and everything, right, like reporting anything, usually it's the girl who gets put through the ringer. Right. So I just numbed and I was able to, you know, really dive into my doctoral work and, but that semester, like a couple of weeks after I was sexually assaulted, I started getting symptoms of type one diabetes, which I didn't know at the time. I just, I didn't know what was happening to my body, but we know that, you know, there is a, a link between autoimmune disease and trauma. Right, and, 
you know, that mind body connection. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know it was happening. And I, you know, was losing a lot of weight, even though I was eating nonstop. I had these recurrent yeast infections. I had, you know, I was thirsty all the time, urinating. So all the classic symptoms. And finally, I had some blood work done. And my doctor was like, I think there's a mistake because my fasting blood sugar was 16. And, you know, which is in the US, you'd multiply by 18 for the the blood sugar. It was just off the charts. So I was hospitalized in December of 2011, and then was put on insulin right away. They said I had type one diabetes, a chronic autoimmune disease that has no cure. I needed to inject myself multiple times a day. So I thought, you know, like one of the first things I asked is, am I, am I going to be able to drink on insulin? (laughs) And they didn't ask about my history or anything. They're like, Oh, of course, like, you know, regular, you know, moderate amounts, which for women is, you know, seven to nine drinks a week, never more than two on any occasion. And I thought, oh, geez, because I had a trip coming up to Cuba, and it was an all inclusive resort. And like, hello, drinking, right, is how you get your money's worth. So we, they did give me the green light to go. And I kind of like, I was very controlled. And that's how addiction works too. It tricks you because sometimes you're able to drink in safety and sometimes you're not. It's like Russian roulette. That was my experience. And then anyway, so I thought, well, this is going to be my cure to my alcoholism. I'm going to finally be able to drink in like normally because I have type one diabetes and I'm going to die if I start, if I binge. But what I figured out is that if you, that, that basically alcohol has the same effect as insulin, it lowers your blood sugar. That's why people who, you know, who drink a lot and even don't have diabetes can end up in the ER in a diabetic coma. Wow. Right. So I started using alcohol, red wine, particularly as insulin. And so I, so I figured out kind of how to drink more and not go low. Although I did have a few hospital stays and that's where the shaming and all of that happened and people don't you know you're diabetic why are you drinking so much you should know better not knowing that I had no control over it that I was really you know had lost all control so yeah I'll go I'll I'll piggyback on that a little bit Judith yeah I have an experience from some of the clients I've had that how like ones that that have had uh, diabetes and had uh, addiction uh, problems how, how that they do get kind of the doctors kind of sort of shame them and not give them the same level of respect with other patients that have no addiction history or. Yeah. Yeah, And, you know, that's also partly why I, why I ended up doing the research that I do now on addiction stigma, because we know that stigma keeps people sick. (laughs) It is a social determinant of health, but it's still prominent in the healthcare field, particularly. And that is, you know, the front line, right? When people, there is like the small window, we know with addiction that people will get help. If they don't get help when, when they're in that window, they're likely not going to. And that shame fuels the cycle of addiction even more. So we need more compassion. This is like, for example, I've heard these comparisons, like a lot of the orthopedic injuries that are are kind of self-inflicted injuries are not just, I mean, some (laughs) can be freak accidents, but yeah, people playing sports that like tear their ACLs or things like that. Those aren't really 
Those are often uh, the word I'm looking for. They're not. They're kind of. They're. They're not just. They're. They're created by the by the, the patient themselves. But but we don't like. But they're, they're, those people are usually stigmatized for the medical care. But uh, people with addiction can be that. Right, and I mean part of that is the public discourse. What I call a toxic alcohol cult- culture, particularly because it's framed as a very benign substance that and if you can't quote unquote drink normally then you're somehow deviant from the norm without actually being honest about how addictive the substance is how it's more dangerous than heroin right that's one point i like to bring up a lot of it yeah (laughs) you know like none of that is discussed there's no warning labels on a bottle of wine there isn't even a calorie count on a bottle of wine right like it's seen as healthy as green tea basically and i bought into that narrative for many years and it kept me sick for a very long time i that's you know something i try to avoid saying but but i feel like sometimes i i've been guilty of saying how a lot of people say that alcohol and drugs as if alcohol is not a not a drug but it's one of the most dangerous drugs. I know. I, I completely agree with it's, that. Yeah. It, it absolutely is. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's very arbitrary. Why? But, but I guess one of the things that makes it a little bit less dangerous, which is a little bit more, it is still very dangerous, but compared to the other ones, the, uh, I'll just go, go where I'm from. I'm a pro kind of decriminalizing, having more of a regulated supply of drugs. But I guess one of the, the distinguishing factors that makes it maybe more, even though it is very dangerous, it, because it's so uh, widely, widely accessible that there's some level of quality control that you know what you're getting that's sold to you in, in stores and stuff and compared to other more illicit drugs, which are. Yeah, but we have a lot of folks who, because of addiction, are drinking hand sanitizer and cologne as well. Well, that's yeah, that's uh, that's uh, yeah, <laughs> that. I mean, where do you, I mean, I would think that would be more and and I guess I don't want to make assumptions, but yeah, that's. And it's not just homeless populations or. Well, I mean, I would say that would be more, I wasn't thinking necessarily homeless populations. I was thinking more people that are in more like facilities or just trying to like, you know, find any way they can get to drink. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but alcohol overdoses uh, are also very common and we don't talk about that, you know. So, yeah, I'll just fast forward to, you know, I, I, I finally hit my final bottom. The diabetes definitely brought me, I think, to my bottom sooner. I had my last drunk on my birthday in 2013. And I just want to point out to your listeners that, you know, <laughs> we're talking about how powerful alcohol is, but I mean, I had every, I'm a very resourceful person. I'm a social worker. I had every plan in place to drink in safety. I had my husband there. I had, you know, I knew I couldn't, I had the knowledge that I could not drink, you know? So, and I, I swore, I I knew what I, I tried swearing off, you know, like I said, all these hard liquors, I had three chaperones. I still didn't get home that night ended up, in the emergency ward the next day after a 16 hour blackout with cracked ribs and the whole nine yards. So, you know, it's, it's not pretty. And, you know, at that point, the reason I got sober, I, I cried a lot to my husband because I wasn't met with shame and 
you know, it was really with compassion and love. And he suggested us getting sober together because, you know, it is a family disease Mm -hmm. and it's hard to do it on your own. And I don't think I would have stayed sober if he was still drinking, honestly. And every couple is different and every family is different, but that was so important to my recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, and so I'll be celebrating seven years sober on November 23rd. So in a few weeks and basically like what my message is, is, you know, there's science behind the disease model of addiction, learning model. We know, you know, but I think what's grossly underestimated is the role of trauma, how addiction functions in people's lives. You know, we're not I was never asked about my childhood or anything like that. You know, it was just focused on changing the behavior and then also the role of stigma. So trauma and stigma. And I think for me, you know, understanding that alcohol was not my problem. It was my solution. Same with food. It's just, you know, another substance. The substance is is actually quite moot or the behavior. So for me, what I call recovery 2.0 is, you know, I had hit a bottom in recovery And because it only lasted for so long, because I hadn't got to the underlying issues, I had done CBD, uh, like cognitive behavioral therapy, all this, but that wasn't, you know, it wasn't a matter, it was really about processing and like, moving through the stress cycle. And like, well, I think you do, if I, if I remember correctly, you mentioned that you, you did e- EMDR and you found it helpful. Yeah. So yeah, like eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy was crucial to me. And also the, you know, to really move through that stress cycle and literally like to focus on the body, not just the mind. Right. Cause I was so, such trauma survivors are so disconnected from the body. So doing things that reconnect you to your body and your nervous system and learning how to regulate your nervous system, Gabor Mate's work also on compassionate inquiry like, you know, rather than judging why you're feeling something, just get curious about it with compassion. That approach also very helpful. Well, and, I, I, I yeah. wanted to maybe chime in here for a little bit. I'll try not to put my opinion about this, but I'm wondering your take and your experience from so describing your, your when you were really at the throes of the addiction. Do you feel that you, I guess, how much agency or control did you feel you had when, when you were sort of in the thick of things with addiction? It depends on what, what phase, but the end I had zero control. I had absolutely no control. I mean, I, I, I try put things in place to try to have control and drink in safety. And I just, I I never knew how the night was going to end. And that's one of the questions, like I work with women now in early recovery. And if they're on the fence about recovery, you know, am I an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever? And I say, what's your favorite drink or drug of choice? So for me, it was red wine. You have a glass of red wine sitting in front of you. If you drink that glass of red wine, can you guarantee a hundred percent how the night's going to end. And I couldn't, I never could. It could be drink a bottle, pass out on the couch, or it could be, you know, a 16 hour blackout ending up in the hospital. I did not know when, how, or what, how it was going to end. That's how powerless I was over it. 
And, and then I've asked this question to a few, few other people. I'm wondering what, what, if you, what you, your opinion is about this, other people in recovery. Like uh, this, it's something, I, I mean, I, I don't identify as being in recovery or sober myself or really, but I mean, I, I also see it as like a spectrum that, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I can drink, I think somewhat responsibly, but then I do, I still have times where I drink and it, I have hangovers and it creates not pleasant and it doesn't always feel it serves me so well either. So, but I have, but, but I guess I, I've seen over the last couple of years, a movement about having these kind of non, non-alcoholic spirits and stuff. So I'm wondering what you if you have any opinions about that. Yeah, it's interesting because I also see a lot of them on Instagram and I'm like, do I like those or do I not like those? Because personally, so when I first got sober, I kind of became addicted to the 0% beer Uh and I was still smoking cigarettes for the first nine months. So I was basically doing the same thing, but just not having the effect. So I would get home from work, I'd go crack open a 0% beer and have a cigarette. And I felt like... I was still a slave in a way to something and I was trying. So I think that like there's, there, there's a saying in, in 12 step communities, but it's like half measures availed us nothing. And I felt like for me, I, I didn't feel totally free and something shifted in my recovery when I, when I was like, you know what, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to buy these anymore. And I stopped smoking cigarettes as well. And because I felt like a slave still, in a way. So I, or I was like expecting, it's like, I was trying to have hold on to an old experience. And I think with recovery, it's really about kind of changing your, your whole life. Okay. Yeah, like for a while, for example, one of the things I've gotten into recently is, is they, they came out these, it's this brand called Hop Lark Tea and, and there's no alcohol, there's actually zero alcohol in it, but they have, I like, I happen to like the flavor of the hops and they have different and it has like that hoppy taste, like an IPA, but there's actually zero alcohol. There's no alcohol in it. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of, I think it may, I may be different now. I just know that in early recovery, like yeah. I was, I was like buying cases of this particular beer. It became like, yeah, it became like one ad- replacing one addiction with right. the other. And I was kind of being sneaky about it as well. So that wasn't it's it's what your motive like intention is if i was out like there's these dry bars now and like if i was out and at one and you know i'll go out to dinner and have a virgin mojito for instance you know i have one i'm not gonna have six of them you know what i mean but i'm also just as happy to have a sparkling water or diet coke right so yeah, I mean, I think sparkling water can be a good, I mean, for me, at least if I don't really want to drink alcohol or like beer to have a kind of something with like a little bit more of a, you know, bite to it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of am a little bit, I go through a lot of sparkling water yeah. actually. One of the things I've, I've realized I actually related to that, but I'm sure they, they saw, I imagine they saw it in Canada too, La Croix water. Well, yeah, I love it. The, the funny thing about it is, is it's actually made in California. It has no French connection to it at all. Well, one of the things I love about the States is that you guys have the best selection of sparkling water yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. Like brands I have never seen. Like we're limited in comparison. And you have different Lacroix flavors too. Yeah. So as soon as this border opens up again, <laughs> I'll uh, go get my stock, stock up on my sparkling water. So I guess when, when, in, in terms of your recovery, when did you get involved with the 12 steps? What, what, what led you? Um, so, yeah, I, 
I was against going 12 steps. Uh-huh. I thought I, so a year before I got sober, I, after like a bad bender, I was like, I, I, I need to do something. So I went to one meeting because of the shame and stigma. I went to a French meeting because in Montreal, there's like, well, there's the French side and the English side. And I didn't want anyone to, who I might know to see me. So I went and it was kind of what I imagined or had seen in the, in the movies. Like it was all these old men and bad coffee and styrofoam cups and that kind of thing. And yeah. I thought, I don't want anything to do with this. So I ended up going out on my own for another year and things got progressively worse. And I tried three different therapists, like when I got sober and I was against going to AA, but I was white knuckling it. Like I was really, I needed that connection, I think with other, I didn't realize that at the time, but with other sober people to see like, you know, just to change my circle. And so I ended up going, it was my abstinence-based therapist because I had three. I had like an existential-based therapist and then my psychiatrist and the, the abstinence-based one who was like, why don't you try a speaker meeting or a woman's meeting? And I didn't even know there were different types of meetings. And so I ended up doing that and then finding kind of my tribe as people call it. And uh, yeah. And then, yeah, just found this group of women who became really good friends. And I, I, I wanted what they had, you know, they were, they were just, you know, amazing women who were leading sober lives and didn't need alcohol to have fun. And, and it was, you know, I wasn't on a pink cloud at the beginning for sure. I, I missed alcohol. You know, I, it was, I loved it. Like I, it was like, I hated what it did to me, but I also, so anyway, yeah. And so, yeah, I did. And then I did get very involved in the, in the 12 steps and I still am involved to this day. All I'm right. very grateful. I, I just wanted to go maybe talk a little bit about the, your, the, the, the piece you were talking about, about how the, the stigma of being in an academic and uh, being in recovery and, and yeah, and, and working in academia and your, your experience and take on that. Yeah. So, well, first I'll just say that because a big part of the stigma is the secrecy. And I was very closeted as an academic, as just a person in recovery. I didn't tell many people, not even my family. And because I was very ashamed of it and had internalized the stigma. And, you know, I'm, there's this book called Faces and Voices of Recovery. And it was a movie. I don't know if you've You've seen it. I think I, it sounds familiar. I think I may have seen some of the movie or it sounds a little bit like the anonymous people, that kind of thing. Or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what it is. Yeah. So the, the faces and voices is the book that accompanies the anonymous people. And, you know, I think that there is a misinterpretation and I misinterpreted, I think what the tradition of anonymity in 12 steps is. And, you know, I think it's really about protecting the newcomer. So, you know, it, it makes sense, right? You, someone who comes in and doesn't want the world to know, like you don't tell someone that someone else is in recovery, but in terms of, you know, public advocacy, I think, you know, even the early founders of, of AA, you know, Bill, he was, you know, would show up in Congress and, and everything like advocacy was a big part of the movement. And people will say, well, it's about protecting, not, not admitting that you're, you know, part of AA and honest, as a social worker or someone, I think that people have a right to know all the treatments that are available to them. You know, if you have cancer and there's, you know, there's chemo, there's radiation, like, I think it's a health issue. It's also a social issue, but people have the right to know what's available. 
So I have no problem saying I'm an AA because that's worked for me. It's not going to work for everyone, but at least people give people the right to make that decision. So I was closeted for five, my first five years. And when I was on the job market after I finished my PhD, I didn't even tell like my thesis supervisor I was in recovery and and this is a social work department, so you'd think people might be a little bit more, you know. Yeah, but I mean, I've experienced, I mean, my share of uh, <laughs> that. Well, here's the thing. I, I, my take on that a little bit is, is, but part of being a social worker and being doing well at it is sort of following around, being able to follow rules and order and bureaucracy. So I, I think that's where they can be judgmental. The people in those positions have to be somewhat good at that to get to those places or to maintain the status there. So it's just tug of war, but. It is. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't want to do anything that would compromise my ability to get a job and maintain a job, you know? So I was very silenced about it and, but it was becoming increasingly difficult for me to remain anonymous the cognitive dissonance was killing me because I'm, you know, on one side I'm teaching about use of self and social work and how to combat stigma and all this, but then yet I felt like I was not being transparent in my own. And also there were a lot of teachable moments for students, you know, around their own biases around what it is to work with someone with an addiction. And I felt like I could use my own example, you know, it would be very helpful. And there were moments like that. So what I ended up doing is approaching my Dean and saying, look, like, if this comes up as a teachable moment, I don't want you to be the last to know. And, you know, I told them that I was strongly advised by my mentor and everyone not to, you know, kind of be out about this. But, and he was extremely supportive, actually. And, you know, kind of was like, your job will not be affected, like your ability to get tenure will not be affected. And after that, I had been studying homelessness and harm reduction. So addiction was always there. It was like, it's not like I said, like I was working at a bank or something and it was never something that crossed my daily work, you know, but it was, it was on my desk all the time. So, and I felt like I couldn't fully engage with my research. So I ended up applying for a grant looking at addiction stigma amongst faculty, the role of addiction stigma in help seeking and in recovery on college campuses and got it. So I've been interviewing deans and service providers about their experience with faculty, you know, in in recovery or, you know, in addict inactive addiction and what their experience have been from a leadership position. And just looking to change the conversation on college campuses, normalizing sobriety, normalizing, you know, making it so that people get help that, you know, and know that there is a community out there and there's no one size fits all recovery, you know, pathway. There's many. And that's something that I really like to reinforce as well. But I think that by not talking about it, it does, it creates this culture of shame and and that keeps people sick. No, I for sure agree on that one. Okay. So any, like, I mean, what, what would you, any sort of, I guess, what, what advice would you give to other people that are either people that are with addiction or maybe academics or, or have a hit, how to come out with, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe can focus on that. How academic other people, how would you, what would you tell them that are in recovery, how to, how to, how to come out with it or what to, how to handle that? Yeah. It's tricky because, you know, I think, 
with great privilege comes great responsibility personally as a white woman um educated i feel a sense of responsibility to kind of have this conversation and i understand why people stay in the closet because it's still not fully acceptable there are consequences especially with practice-based professions but on the other hand you know we if we don't talk about it, then it's going to, the status quo is going to stay that way. So my advice is um, know that you're not alone. There is, you know, it's not your fault. (laughs) I do think that reframing it with a trauma informed lens addiction is a way to humanize these experiences and not just focus on the behavior or the substance to understand it as a response to a traumatic injury, whether psychological, spiritual, traumatic, you know, there's all different types of, of trauma. And, and I think that that's also something that people, I hope people realize that trauma isn't just one thing that, you know, there are many, you know, covert and overt and that basically the addiction was a solution to that. And that the stigma. Well, I mean, I like to say more like an attempted solution, though, in a way. Well, yeah. If you ask for, people why they yeah. why they started using, the most common answers are relief. So whether relief from psychological pain, spiritual pain, or physical pain, connection, control, like these are all things that people. These are all good things like these are part of human nature right well, I, mean, or, I mean it's related to control but i think there's something in a way that can be when you engage in a substance that you feel a sort of a lack of control that that can be kind of liberating for a time being if it doesn't get totally to like numbing out that's part yeah. of the relief yeah. Off. Yeah. like it, it's getting outside of yourself yeah exactly. so those are all like perfectly normal reasons but it's like for some people a switch gets turned and they're no longer able to control it and it controls you. So I think that that's where just understanding that, that there's deeper, it's not just, Oh my God, like I, why can't I just, you know, stop this now? (laughs) Yeah. And I, I mean, I think we just need more people in high level positions in, in the workforce to come out and, you know, talk about the positives of recovery as well. Like, I think that that's where like my life is so much better now that I'm in recovery, right? Like it's often, Oh my God, I'm going to miss out on everything. And that's because sobriety is not normalized. 